Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, October 25th, 2021. On the show today, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of Walt Disney World's electrical water pageant. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks how many s'mores an exploding stay-puffed marshmallow man can make. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I am doing well today, Lent. Thanks for asking. So I feel like these are one of the questions that you get interviewed on when you when you interview with Google. Like, <laughs> you know, because like, you know, everyone goes with, you know, how many tennis balls can fit in a 747. Mm-hmm. But this is, I think, is a more interesting question. Yeah, and especially out ahead of Ghostbuster Afterlife, the sequel that's coming out November 19th. There's a Ghostbuster sequel coming out? There's a Ghostbuster sequel. In fact, it's directed by Jason Reitman, whose dad, Ivan Reitman, directed the two original Ghostbuster films back in 84 and 89. The reason this is appropriate to talk about on the Disney dish is, in fact, I've just shared an image with you of the original layout for at least part of the great movie ride. And do you want to tell the folks what you see in the middle of that? So it's sort of an, uh, a cursive L-shaped segment of the ride. Mm-hmm. And I believe, Jim, it starts in the lower left-hand corner with a young Frankenstein laboratory scene. Yes. And you can see Gene Wilder and the... Uh, and, and the monster. Mm-hmm. Are they doing a, a dance of some kind of tango? Remember the, the scene in the movie where he gets the monster up on its feet and then the monster goes into choke the Victor Frankenstein and the yeah. whole, set a give, set a give. You know, so, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go through this door and no matter what I say, don't open the door. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. So, all right. So that's a young, there's a young Frankenstein scene mm-hmm. and then alien quarter, which we sort of got. Right. And I see the alien from the aliens movie. Mm -hmm. And then it goes to a Ghostbusters scene with a giant stay puffed marshmallow man and the the Ghostbusters on the balcony of the top of the building with their proton packs uh, attacking the stay puffed marshmallow man. Yeah. And the temple, the Gozer, the temple that we ended up getting for. Indiana Jones is apparently the temple from Gozer, Gozer the Gazarian. Remember that Mel Brooks and Disney were involved in the early 80s or or mid-80s because he did that show Nuthouse that keyed off of the set for Big Business. And Mel was part of the original development of Tower of Terror back when that was going to be Hotel Mel. But Disney was like, ooh. We want the Ghostbusters. And so, you know, they were in negotiations with Columbia and things seemed to be going well until Universal swooped in and grabbed the IP right out from under Disney. And they were so far along in the development of Great Movie Ride at this point that there was an original version of the finale of Great Movie Ride. Remember how you go into that theater and there's, you know, all four cars are pulled in and you then watch the world's greatest clip show. The way that was supposed to end, though, was after the movie ended, suddenly curtains on both sides pulled up and on platforms of various levels around the entire room were going to be animatronic versions of all of the characters that you'd met previously. So so John Wayne would have been there and Clint Eastwood would have been there and Dorothy would have been there and Sigourney Weaver from the alien scene. And I've seen a drawing of this and you can so clearly see a Ghostbuster standing there with his proton pack. This was part of the show until Universal swooped in and grabbed it out from under Disney. But this is a period when 
Disney and Universal really did not like one another, and Sid Scheinberg at that point referred to Disney as that ravenous rat. <laughs> so the fact, you know, they took great pride, and it's like, hey, we, we got Ghostbusters out from under Disney, but... Would have been cool to have a, a full-size Stay Puft Marshmallow Man rising up and menacing your, your moving car. It sort of looks like the King Kong concept from... Very much. Very yeah. much. Yeah. So, I love how in the Indiana Jones scene, the Lost Temple, that says nothing about snakes, but it does say mummies. <laughs> and uh, apparently the effect, the transition effect between the Lost Temple and the Tarzan scene, which we got, by the way, we got a Tarzan scene, mm-hmm. is a cave-in or booby trap. Uh, a gag that's supposed to happen. Yeah. Interesting. It, All yeah. right. So we, it, we came close. Yeah, we did. We did. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Jacob and Days, The Grumpy, and Consumer Monkey, and long-time subscribers, Big Cheezer, Joe Manasco, and Diz Wes. Jim, these folks are the travel agents standing by to book your trip to Mercury Peak Intergalactic Park, Crater Caverns, the coral moons of Pisces 7, and all of the other wonderful destinations you see advertised on the way out of Space Mountain. True story. Is there anyone there I could talk to about missing luggage? <laughs> yeah, it's on one of the, the moons of Jupiter, and I just don't know which one. And There we go. All right, Jim, let's do some listener questions. We've got quite a few today. Here's one from Kathy, who says, I understand why Disney's keeping the park reservation system in place to help with staffing. But what exactly does Disney gain from not allowing park hopping until 2 p.m.? Do you think this is also here to stay or something that will shift once capacity and staff are both closer to 100%? So, Jim, not allowing park hopping until 2 o'clock. And I know for a lot of people, right, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of like because if Animal Kingdom opens at 8 and you get in there and uh, get things done early, you could be done with Animal Kingdom by noonish. You right? can. At least, at least now, well, there's not a uh, replacement for... Finding Nemo the musical, right? Mm-hmm. I hate to say this, but the two o'clock park hopping thing becomes painfully obvious. I mean, think about it. When exactly do the first shift of employees for parks like, say, the Magic Kingdom or the studio show up? What is that? That's six o'clock in the morning, right? You know, six, seven, yeah. Six, seven, yeah. Okay. So think about when does your next wave of cast members show up to handle the afternoon into the evening hours? It's two o'clock. This is when we have the necessary bodies, when people are going out the door after having worked in the morning and when the next set comes in. So it's obviously not done for the guests' convenience, but from from an operational point of view, this is what works for Disney now. I note, too, that if you think about the parks that people are hopping to, it's probably the Magic Kingdom and Epcot. This is true. To a lesser extent, the studios. No one is really hopping to Animal Kingdom after... Two o'clock. I mean, people people will, right? People do, but I think a lot of them will. If if those that are going into uh, Animal Kingdom in the afternoon, I'm betting a lot of them are wearing Alicia Stella's kite tails t-shirts. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm just here for the show. There we go. Yeah, so I, yeah. So I think that's what it is. It's um. You know, they want to make sure that they don't overburden the Magic Kingdom or Epcot, especially around dining. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a. Uh, I think yeah. that's really it. Yeah. They've only really prevented people from hopping at two o'clock once or twice. I think they did it on October 1st for the 50th anniversary of the Magic Kingdom. They held people for like a minute or mm-hmm. two. But even then, it wasn't that much of a delay. So yeah, I don't, I don't know why mm-hmm. they're doing it. I think it's one of those things where the, there's a policy in place and the policy is going to be in place until Disney thinks they don't need it anymore. But I think practically, 
from a practical perspective, it doesn't really, they, they could get rid of the two o'clock restriction and it wouldn't change things. I agree, but there are these policies in place as Disney continues to ride out the pandemic. Yeah. All right, here's a, uh, an email from Stuart who says, when was the last time Disney or Universal developed a ride that was not based on an existing intellectual property franchise? Now, Jim, you and I had this conversation right before the show started. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Harmonious replacing Illuminations, right? Illuminations was famously not based on an IP. Harmonious is, is all about IP, right? I want to credit the folks over at Laughing Place for this, but they got an interview with Steve Davidson, and Steve put Harmonious in Bob Chapek's laugh. They had developed an entirely different storyline, an entirely different take on Harmonious, and Bob, as one of his first acts as the new Disney CEO, I, I believe the quote is, let's do a Disney concert. People love Disney music. My friend Angela Ragno went into the park twice this past week to watch Harmonious. She caught it once from, what is it? Uh, she actually, because they had sold out the area between the two stores at the edge of a World Showcase for a corporate group, she ended up on the other side of World Showcase Lagoon, basically looking through some trees at the show straight on in front of the American Adventure. And Oof, that's not good. The thing is, there was, there was nobody in front of her. She just had a couple of trees and really enjoyed it from that angle. On the other hand, she went back later in the week and... Now there was no corporate group buying out that space between the two shops, so she was in there, and and then it was sort of a festival of bobbing around people to see the show. But she enjoyed the, the visuals, she enjoyed the idea that the music would start in English and go to the language, that there was an effort made to tie the show to the pavilions, but... This came down from Bob, at least according to Steve Davidson. It's the effect of this is a Disney concert because people love Disney music. Did Angela mention anything about show quality differences standing in the uh, the U.S. Pavilion versus standing right at the, the front where World Check is in Future World Meet? No, she did not. But Angela has friends who work at the company and they were telling her about already there has been pushback from folks who the traditional locations for like dessert parties around Epcot, that little island in France. And I think you were mentioning uh, Italy, Italy. And the fact that nowadays, because of the Stargate, you don't have great sight lines from there. And already, yeah. I, I guess, groups are pushing back to the effect of, I spent all this money for a dessert party, and I can't really see the show. Yeah, there, I mean, I, I think, um, I, I may have said this on the show, but seeing the performance live from Italy and then seeing it from where World Shake is and Future World Meet, they're two different things. Like, there are things that I, I know I didn't see, mm-hmm. or at least didn't recognize standing in Italy versus standing like right in the front. And I think this is a Steve Davidson show design mm-hmm. feature, right? I mean, everything Steve does is is geared from a specific vantage point and everything is built off around that. That is true. If you think about his castle projection shows of that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and you have to do that, right? You have to, you have to say, here's, here's one point that we're basing it on. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to, uh, to Stuart's question. So I went back and did some research. Mm-hmm. For Universal Gym, I think the last attraction that they built that was not strictly tied to intellectual property, mm-hmm. was it Hollywood Rip Ride Rocket Ooh. in 2009? I'll give you that one. I will. Now, mind you, the whole gimmick of it having programmable audio. So the music you're listening to is stuff that Universal has licensed that's from known recording artists. But yeah, I would say that if we overlook the onboard audio thing. Yeah, Rip Ride Rockets, it. God, but 2009, holy cow. Yeah, I knew, the, I knew that there were musical acts there, but it wasn't like it's, it's not like Rock and Roller Coaster, mm-hmm. which if Universal had done like 
a specific band that they owned. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. Okay. Got that. All right. So maybe. And yeah, but boy, if that if uh, if that's not it, I mean, you may have to go back like to Sinbad. I mean, the opening of the park. Yes, you're right. It's been a while. It's yeah. been a while. For Magic Kingdom, what I have here is Astro Orbiter, the retheme in 1995. Okay. <laughs> Because my other entry here was Pirates Adventure Treasure of the Seven Seas, but that actually is based on Pirates of the Caribbean. Yep. yep. The movie, because Jack Sparrow's in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Epcot, I have Awesome Planet 2020, but there's sort of a tie-in to one of their TV shows in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so Some of All Thrills 2009. Okay. Yeah. I, that count? That would count. Yeah. All right. Uh, Animal Kingdom, Expedition Everest 2006. Mm-hmm. And then for the studios, the last thing I have, Lights, Motors, Action, Stunt Show? Was that based on a specific IP? The initial plan for the stunt show was a James Bond-themed yep. stunt show. In fact, as you made your way through the queue, literally go through Q's laboratory. And in the end, the Broccoli family was, well, we love this idea. Now, how much money are you willing to pay? And it's like, Disney, money? <laughs> pay? Uh, so, Okay, so speaking of James Bond, are we all in agreement here, listeners, that the next 007 Needs to be Brett Goldstein from uh, who plays Roy Kent on Ted Lasso. Ooh, do we do we all agree on this? Right, this is <laughs> this is something. This is our shibboleth. This is our article of faith. Something to think about. Okay, cool, cool. All right, so it's been so Epcot. I would not have guessed mm-hmm. as the most recent non-IP based uh, attraction, and but then after that, it's. You're looking back 10, 15 years for a lot of things. This is why there's almost a little church that has grown up around Mystic Manor, which again opened at Hong Kong Disneyland back in 2013. Disney can still create great attractions based around non-IPs. And it's like, why isn't this coming stateside? All right. Here's a question from Jonathan who says, I booked a trip for February 2022 on property, and I still have my magic bands from our September 2019 trip. I'm not particularly interested in buying new magic bands. But on the Disney website, the chat people claim generally after a year, the old magic bands may not be able to capture certain attraction photos. We're paying for PhotoPass, so I certainly want to make sure we can actually get the pictures. But this wishy-washy language may not. Some attractions has me skeptical. Are they just trying to scare me into coughing up another 80 bucks? Or is there something to this? So, Jonathan, I don't think you'll have any trouble with a two and a half year old magic band. My daily magic band is also from 2019. It works absolutely fine on all of these things. And before that, the magic band that I use until like 2020 was from 2014. It was the, uh, the one that I tested custom stickers on. And the only reason I stopped using that one was because the fastener broke, not the RFID chip on it. Um, I, think, I think you're absolutely going to be fine. I mean, the easiest thing to do is don't buy one, show up on the first day and see if your photo passes link automatically. If they do, you're fine if they don't buy some magic bands, but I think you're going to be, I think you're going to be absolutely fine with uh, with magic bands for 2019. So Disney Parks and Division, this is their version of one hour martinizing. Well, yeah. oh my God, you've got a magic band from three years ago. No, 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 that, that's never going to work. You please <laughs> step over to the kiosk here, and we'll get you martinized and rust proofed in no time. 2019. I mean, you talk about planned obsolescence. Oh, God. All right. I'm not sure if it's going to work. You don't know. All right. We'll see. Jeez. All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim gives us the history of Disney World's electrical water pageant. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, why don't you bring us up to date? I know we've been talking a lot about the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World and particularly what was happening around the time that Walt Disney World opened in 1971. Mm-hmm. And today we're talking about the electrical water, water pageant, which goes a long way back in history, right? It does. It's the day this show made its debut. In fact, it will be it would have been 50 years ago yesterday, October 24th. Oh that it was shown to the guests who were finishing up their three-day-long grand opening of the Walt Disney World Resort. They did the grand opening of the Contemporary in the afternoon at 2 o'clock with Bob Hope making places where blimps go to mate jokes. And then the group moves over to the Poly. They have a cocktail party by the pool, and then they march down the beach to just behind the Hawaiian Longhouse. And there they have cast members standing there who hand everybody little lays with purple orchids on them and then take them to a bunch of low tables. And then in a genuinely weird bit of, of synergy, you know, well, the, the lure is about to start, but we're waiting for the king to arrive. And so who do they bring in by longboat, but it's King Leonidas, the lion character from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And he sits in one of those big Sydney Green Street, you know, rattan chairs for the, I mean, it's a two hour long presentation. And there's this poor cast member in a lion outfit, like, I'm the king and I'm sitting here and please eat faster. I want <laughs> two hours sitting in a lion costume. But surrounded by tiki torches. So the entire time, please don't catch on fire. <laughs> and you, you know that there was not a single natural fiber oh, no, no, in no. that costume. That it was, it, He was basically wearing a feline version of the Hindenburg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they have dancers and elaborate foods. And supposedly it was the largest luau that had ever been staged outside of the, the state of Hawaii. Really? Or at least that's what the PR packet claimed. And it ended with the Disney World debut of the Arctic Water Pageant. But if we step back three years, and in January of 1968, in fact, I got this info out of that book you were talking about just last week, the Disney World at 50, the book that the Sentinel put together of their coverage of the Disney World Resort. Right. It's January of 1966, and Disney is now finally starting to get specific about what they're going to do with that 24,700 acres that they own 17 miles to the southeast of Orlando. And one of the things that the Sentinel talks about in this article is that Disney's plan is to extend and enlarge Bay Lake. Now, Bay Lake is already 450 acres, Mm -hmm. but when they finally finish this land, this is 750 million cubic yards of earth that gets pulled out of the ground. But they extend Bay Lake, they turn it into a three-mile-long waterway dotted with natural and man-made islands. They go on to say that in its new form, Bay Lake will become the focus of water spectacular and sports, while at the same time retaining its original, often spectacular beauty. So it's the spring of 1971. And now, right alongside Bay Lake, we have Seven Seas Lagoon, a 220-acre man-made body of water, deepest point land, 14 feet deep. 
And it's connected by the water bridge, which your sister Christy and I went into great detail in the show before. She does love a water bridge, she? She does. Though also, when I described that the concrete pads were only two feet thick, I think she's going to drive the long way around. <laughs> she's not going to go that. She's not going to take that little tunnel underneath, go to the uh, contemporary anymore. Yeah, right? she's going the long way around the barn for the lots rest of Lots of people go to the contemporary through Grand Floridian Way. Yeah, lots of people do it. Yeah, up into Windermere and then back down. Yeah, 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 it's great. Okay. So you're Bob Yanni. He was the guy hired in 1967 to become the company's director of entertainment. And one of your first assignments is to figure out what sort of water spectacular you're going to do on this now nearly three mile long waterway. If we've learned nothing from Harmonious and Kite Tales, when you're staging a show on a body of water, this is tough to pull off. You're dealing daily with things like wind and chop. Picture Bob Yanni. He's now visiting the still active Walt Disney World construction site. Magic Kingdom Contemporary and the Poly are months away from being complete, and we're still years away from the resorts out on Hotel Plaza being built. So when the sun goes down at Nightland, there are no lights off in the distance. There are no lights anywhere. Oh, it's black. Yeah. And so here's Bob standing at the edge of Seven Seas Lagoon. And by this point, he's now the vice president of entertainment for Walt Disney Production. Got himself a promotion along the way. And because of that, Mr. Yanni is privy to the fact that Project Florida is now hundreds of millions of dollars over budget. Your spectacular includes Bob himself on the back of a ski boat. <laughs> well, yes. no, that's it exactly. He knows there is no money. There's no money. He's going to get this minuscule budget for whatever yeah. he's, he's going to do. And this is a guy who staged halftime shows for the Super Bowl. This is the guy who did the bicentennial fireworks display over New York Harbor in July of 1976. He's the guy who ran Radio City Music Hall from, from 79 going forward. And I mean, that's one of the biggest indoor theatrical setups in the world. So this is a guy who has six months to deliver a water spectacular on a teeny tiny budget. <laughs> Bob is an incredibly bright guy. So he's looking out over the inky blackness of Bay Lake and Seven Seas Lagoon and realizes all of this darkness is going to hide a wide variety of sins. It sounds like the tagline for Las Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) You, You are actually not wrong. If you think about when people talk about Las Vegas and at night when it's lit up by neon. It's the lights, yeah. But that's the thing. When you look at it during the day, it's like, whoa. That's a, you know, but, yeah. but, it, but at night, it, you know, with the reflection and the light, it looks amazing. Yeah. So Bob realizes, look, it's dark. People aren't going to see how cheaply this show is made, especially from a distance. So late spring, early summer of 71, Yanni begins running some tests out at Seven Seas Lagoon at night. He goes out and buys several rolls of chicken wire. They build a, a rectangular frame. It's 25 feet tall and like 30 feet long. And they stretch the chicken wire out. And then they proceed to string this thing with Christmas lights. I mean, 1960s era Christmas lights. Oh, the big, the glass bulbs that would heat up and, yeah. He's got his couple of members of entertainment team down there. And what he has is like, let's just do something simple. Let, let's make the shape of a whale. So they take a picture of a whale and they figure out the math of all right, where the lights go for that. Walt Disney World is still months away from opening at this point. So there's, there's only a few pieces of watercraft that have been completed and delivered. I mean, this, this is a barge, right? This is a flat, flat top. Thing. Well, for the, for the test, they literally bring this out on one of the watercraft that they eventually ended up using taking hotel guests. So they they have it basically hanging off of the side of the boat. 
Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, this is this is this seems safe to me. But at the same time, they have to bring a generator on board to provide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you, you when you're combining electricity and water, the thing you want to <laughs> the thing you want to bring into the mix, Jim, is gasoline. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've seen enough videos to know how all of this is supposed to go. <laughs> so they take this chicken wire two by four monstrosity out on the water, basically adhere it to the side of the, the watercraft that they persuade them, just give it to the, for the night, all right? And then Bob and his team are standing outside of the Magic Kingdom, basically where you go to make the right to go up to the monorail station. And yep, yep. it's like nine o'clock at night, the boat positions itself about 100, 200 feet out on Seven Seas Lagoon. And then Bob gets on the walkie-talkie and says, okay, turn off all, all the lights on the boat. And then fire up the generator, and they're standing on shore, and then suddenly, 100, 200 feet, feet out is a whale. It's a white outline of a whale, but it's also reflected in the water. It's crude by Disney standards, but at the same time, with the reflection, it's, it's kind of pretty. Okay. It's like, this might work. Now, mind you, you can hear the, the motor of the boat that oh, is yeah. straining to hold the position to the effect of, okay, we got to stay right here in front of the kingdom so they can see it. But it's like, okay. And Bob's like, this could work. So now it becomes this race against time. I mean, Bob has to turn around. He orders 15 barges because the electric water pageant isn't actually one continuous string of boats. It's actually two. Seven boat strings that either end have a, a boat with engines that's struggling to hold this thing into place. On each of these seven barges, they erect a 25-foot-high, 36-foot-wide rectangle of uh, aluminum uh, fencing material. They, they ditched the chicken wire because it turns out after a while that just couldn't hold up the Christmas lights. And Oh, that's right. It will, I mean, wire will stretch even if it's metal. They over time. And, and yeah. after a while, the whale started to look very sad. <laughs> He's pudgy the whale, not fudgy the whale, right? <laughs> As we keep stressing here. Bob didn't have a lot of time. He doesn't have a lot of money. And also, because Walt Disney Productions is famous for its full-length animated features, they were going to have to have some sort of animation on these things. And Bob's like, you know the Eat It Joe signs? That's the sort of animation we're doing with these things. That's all we can afford right now. Maybe at some point in the future we'll get some money to fix this, but just do what you can do. So we told the story of the actual night of the party, October 24th, 1971. Everybody poolside, you know, it's their choice between an Aloha Bowl or a Mai Tai. And so Bob's in with the group and he marches down and he's sitting there all night nursing his Mai Tai thinking, oh God, there's so much that can go wrong at this point. Because even with the fact that the screens that the Christmas lights are on are wire, and the wire mesh they've got holding them, they can still catch the wind. Yeah, there's enough stuff there. That, yeah, I mean, it's big enough to act like a sail, right? It doesn't happen all the time. In fact, according to the crew that works this show to this day at the parks, it's, it's only 10 days out of the year do they have inclement enough weather that the electric water pageant doesn't go on. But, but again, it's wow. still a struggle to keep it in place. And Bob's also enough of a showman that, you know, he said, well, we gotta, gotta be a dramatic way to introduce this thing. So they finish the luau and then suddenly everybody looks overhead and <laughs> what's in the skies over the party, but the Goodyear blimp. Oh, you know, that sort of electric ticker tape thing that it has at the bottom that'll do messages or that sort of thing. And it's like, yeah, it's like, ladies and gentlemen, we please direct your eyes out onto the Seven Seas Lagoon. And that's when they fire up the electrical water pageant. I can see, I can see a bunch of cast members in the dark 
on Seven Seas Lagoon, pulling the the starter string, <laughs> the starter rope on a bunch of generators all at once. Oh, you, you are seriously not wrong. No, I mean, Marsha, you're flooding it. You're flooding the engine. <laughs> Pull back the choke. This is 1971. So when it's time to start the show, Yanni pulls out a walkie-talkie the size of a shoebox. Right? Oh, and yeah. it's like, okay, boys, start it up. And they do. And everyone is charmed. You know, it's like, oh, look at this. This is amazing. Disney's done it again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this, the party ends. Disney gets this slew of cast members who hold up sparklers and basically light the way from the beach, this tunnel of light that leads people from the beach back to the lobby of the Polly. And Card Walker, who's the president of the Walt Disney Company at the time, seeks out Bob Yanni and goes, that is a great show. We need something like that at Disneyland. And Bob's like, but but Disneyland. His eye is twitching at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing about it. Disneyland doesn't have a big dark lake that we can float barges in and that are covered with Christmas lights. And 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 cards walkers just sort of claps Yanni on the shoulder and it's like, you'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, eight months later, the Main Street Electrical Parade starts rolling up Main Street USA. I didn't know that. So the electrical water pageant is the precursor of the Main Street Electrical Parade? Absolutely. And that's cards. I didn't know this. You were right about the eye twitch and poor Bob Yanni, what they had to do to get the Main Street Electrical Parade going. You know, they tell stories about on the night of the launch in June of 1972, there were technicians still on the floats seconds before they rolled out into Main Street. I mean, they were still screwing things in and plugging things down. It's like, go, 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 get off, get off. Go, and, go. And, and the thing for the press preview, they only had the press along the length of Main Street USA. So the parade floats came out, they made the right, they went up Main Street. And the thing is, the nickel-cadmium batteries that they had at that point would only hold the charge for like five or six minutes. So the press talked about, oh, it was lovely. I mean, as the, the floats reached the top of the street, they magically disappeared into the darkness. And it's like, no, they ran out of battery. It's completely planned. Completely planned. So back to the, the actual watch pageant premiere in, uh, again, October 24th, 1971. Bob, because he wasn't entirely sure that the electrical water pageant was going to be spectacular enough to really close the show. He hedged his bets. And what he did is he, at the end, the very end of the show, he then has the Fantasy in the Sky fireworks start over Seven Seas Lagoon. Ooh. And so this means you got a position, a fireworks barge in position out there in the water. Because your setup is behind the, the Magic Kingdom to do the show. So you have to put a, a barge out in the water. They also put... A fireworks, a pyro launch station out on Castaway Key. By the way, did you know that the original Castaway Key is out in Seven Seas Lagoon? I did not know this. Yeah, it turns out there are three man-made islands out there. There's Blackbeard Island, there's Beachcomber Island, and Castaway Key. And the private island that the Disney uh, Cruise Line goes to is actually named after the one that's out in Seven Seas Lagoon. So anyway, they've got pyro launching from the barge. They've got it from Castaway Key. And somebody came up with the idea of, well, we've got the barges out there for the, the electrical water pageant. Why don't we just do like some sparkler launches from there? So they finished the show. And it turns out the first show was almost the last show. Because when they bring them back to the canal behind the Magic Kingdom where the electrical water pageant docks to this day, 
they looked at the bottom of the boat and the pyro had almost burned through these barges. Really? It's like, okay, let's not do that again. But anyway, this show then goes on with its chicken wire Christmas light start. It goes on to run at the resort. In fact, the only time it really has gone dark for any length of time was when the entire resort shut down for the pandemic in March of last year. And then it finally came back full time December 20th of last year. And you had been keeping tabs on the construction of the walkway between the Grand Flow and the Magic Kingdom. And a key part of that construction, the reason it took as long as it did, is that they needed to create a swing bridge to allow each night. The bridge had to swing out of, out of place of the electrical water pageant with its 25-foot tall, 36-foot long screens could then float out of that canal and go out to the water. But it is basically the show that we've known since 71. I mean, in fact, for the 50th, they've added a little sort of light effect. And what is the the theme song for the 50th anniversary? Uh, the Magic is Calling. The Magic is the Calling. Magic is calling. So, yeah. so you get a little taste of that. But the very last time the show got a really significant update was actually for Disney World's 25th anniversary. It's been that long, 25 years. Yeah, 1996. In fact, it was at that time that they kind of made a point of we should really make this more about Disney music because as Bob Chapek says, people love Disney music. People, that's... <laughs> but that's when um, you got things like Music of the Little Mermaid and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Pete's Dragon and Peter Pan. That's when they, they added that music to the visuals that have been there since 71. So the sort of swing this back to Harmonious, which had been in development for at least five years, six years, and all of the money that had been thrown at that. And it's still a show that's kind of finding its way. Whereas, you know, if you look at the the electrical water pageant, he had six months, he had no money. He had chicken wire and Christmas lights and they pulled it off. But again, who doesn't love Christmas lights? Especially floating Christmas lights with music yeah, it's it. <laughs> and generators that can fall in the water <laughs> <So>. <laughs> there's just an element of thrill in uh everything's possible when that show starts starts up i love the stories of this era of the disney world resort where we have no money we have no time i mean it's it's that moment in muppet vision 3d it's a glorious six and a half an hour per minute you got a minute and a half and, you got that, a minute and, a half. and that's it exactly everybody delivered this stuff on a minute and a half I mean, I mean a lot of stuff didn't didn't make it right a lot of stuff still isn't around but the fact that you have things like hoopty do which was created by interns oh, or God, yes yes electrical water pageant which was you know thrown together with stuff from home depot mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a uh, you know it's a testament to what you can do at the last minute, it's because they've got creative people working over there. Absolutely. But you and I have had this conversation of how many temporary attractions are still with us because that's temporary. Oh, yeah. That's not going to be here for very long. It's like, well, yeah. 30 years, but who's counting? <sighs> it's fine. It's mm-hmm. fine. Yep. That's, uh, that's an amazing story. And I didn't know that the uh, that the electrical water pageant is the uh, is the inspiration for Main Street Electrical Parade, but that makes complete sense now. No, we should definitely do a deeper dive on that because there are so many hilarious stories about Disney had the floats built by a company in Chicago, and they showed up like six weeks before the, the parade was supposed to launch, and it's like they go to the warehouse, and it's like there's a pile of lights and wires, and it's like the floats, where are the floats? And it's just sort of like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, floats. <laughs> floats, and it's like, and Disney literally throws all the pieces in trucks and drives them out to Anaheim, and it suddenly becomes tab A into slot B. What the hell is this supposed <laughs> to be? <laughs> you know, so... 
All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including two new shows on the history of Disney's Flying Saucer Ride. On next week's show, we're going to talk about how Disney's readjusting its space-themed attractions and shows now that real-life space tourism has started. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, He'll be demonstrating his barbecue-themed Whirly Gigs at the North Carolina Whirly Gig Festival on Saturday, November 6th at the Wallace Simpson Whirly Gig Park in beautiful downtown Wilson, North Carolina. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.